0: That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No necessary. by law. 18 plus apply. website for details. Radio. Black abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 3, Side 1. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of state. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Benjamin Lundy, who expressed the hope that their example would not be lost upon their sisters of fairer hue or those of their own color in other localities. At each of the first five colored conventions held in the early 1830s, resolutions were passed in support of free labor products the first convention urging colored capitalists to invest their funds in free produce stores, and the fifth convention enjoining every lover of freedom to abstain from the use of slave labor products as far as practicable. Negro newspapers took up the refrain, Freedom's Journal running several articles on free produce. One piece pointed out that every 25 persons who used slave sugar provided employment for one slave with the result that New York City Negroes were subject to requiring the labor of fifty of our brethren. Hence, to abstain from using such produce was necessary in order to convince the public that Negroes were sincere in their protest against slavery. Outside of Philadelphia there were a few efforts by Negro groups to foster free produce. In New York in 1838, a group of colored women promoted a display of free labor products at the Broadway Tabernacle, charging six and a half cents for admission, plus additional outlay if one ate. with the proceeds going for anti-slavery purposes. At the annual meeting of the Geneva Colored Anti-Slavery Society in 1839, the members were invited prayerfully to ponder the question whether they can innocently or consistently use the products of slave labor. At its organizational meeting in August 1841 at Hartford, the Union Missionary Society besought its members to refuse to receive the known fruits of unrequited labor. A few Negroes attempted to run businesses on free produce principles. In March 1834, William Whipper opened a free labor and temperance grocery store next door to Bethel Church in Philadelphia. As an added attraction, he reported that the store kept a constant supply of abolitionist books and pamphlets on hand. A Negro confectioner in Philadelphia used nothing but free sugar. He got Angelina Grimke's order for her wedding cake. The young and serious Frances Ellen Watkins invariably spoke of free produce while on the abolitionist circuit, expressing thanks that she was able to pay a little more for a free labor dress if it is coarser." In an article on free produce written for Frederick Douglass's paper, Miss Watkins viewed the movement as the harbinger of hope, the ensign of progress, and a means of proving the consistency of our principles and the earnestness of our zeal. In December 1852, Jacob C. White delivered a lecture to the Banneker Institute in Philadelphia entitled, The Inconsistency of Colored People Using Slave Produce. White criticized his fellow blacks, saying that if there were only two stores in the city, one of them free produce and the other slave produce, not one colored person in fifty would go out of his way to patronize the former. But to most abolitionists, white or black, the free produce movement was not a vital issue. For everyone who abstained entirely from slave labor goods or commodities, there were dozens who abstained only in part and then when not too inconvenient, and hundreds who simply ignored the whole thing. The non-participants ran little risk of censure. More than any other phase of the abolitionist program, the exclusive use of free labor products remained a matter between the individual and his conscience, rather than a dividing line between the faithful and the backsliders. If Negroes were not without fond memories of some Quakers and some Quaker efforts, they could also nod approvingly at the work of the Congregationalists in helping to found the American Missionary Association. Founded in 1846, because the existing missionary groups were too quiet about slavery, the American Missionary Association was made up of four organizations founded shortly before 1846. By far the most important of these was the Amistad Committee. The Amistad was a Spanish schooner which, in the summer of 1839, had been seized by its cargo of fifty-four slaves, led by their headman, Sink. The two whites, who had been spared expressly to navigate the ship back to Menby, the West African homeland of the captors, brought it instead by a ruse to Long Island waters, where it was seized by the United States brig, Washington. The Spanish government demanded the return of the mutineers who were committed to prison pending trial for piracy. Coming to their assistance, a group of abolitionists headed by Lewis Tappan, Joshua Levitt, and Simeon S. Jocelyn formed the Amistad Committee. Dedicated to the defense, support, and education of the Mendians, the committee secured legal aid to fight their case in the federal courts. A portion of the funds raised came from Negro groups, Two of the self improvement societies in New York, the Philomathian and the Phoenixian, sent $84, the proceeds of a jointly sponsored concert. A benefit in Cincinnati at the Colored Baptist Church raised $50, which a local weekly considered remarkable in view of the hard times. To raise money, the Amistad Committee sold pictures of Sink at a dollar apiece. The picture was a replica of a portrait by Nathaniel Jocelyn of New Haven, gifted brother of S.S. Jocelyn, whose services had been commissioned by Robert Purvis. The original created a problem for the Artist Fund Society of Philadelphia, to whom Purvis had sent it upon the request of a member. The Hanging Committee, however, decided against exhibiting the portrait on the grounds that to do so would be injurious to the society's wheel in light of the excitement of the times. In March 1841, after 18 months of effort, the Amistad committee was elated when the Supreme Court declared the Mendians to be free, dismissing them from the custody of the court. The committee, along with other abolitionists, gave much of the credit to John Quincy Adams, who had been persuaded to become senior counsel in the final stages of the case. The hundreds of letters of thanks that were sent to him included one dated March 30, 1841, from a Negro group in Columbus, Ohio. A man who had received countless expressions of approbation over a long public career that included a term in the White House, Adams sent a gracious reply to the black correspondents from Columbus. I never received from any body of men a vote of thanks more grateful to my feelings than yours. The Amistad Committee had one final task, to raise money to get the Mendians back to their homelands. As in the case of the Defense Fund, some of the contributors were Negroes. Like other abolitionists, they responded wholeheartedly to the Mendian mission, inasmuch as they regarded it as the one mission that was free of the taint of the American Colonization Society. In New York in May 1841, fundraising meetings were held at two colored churches. In Philadelphia, four predominantly Negro meetings were held in July, from which $400 was realized, clear of expenses. Organized by Louis Tappan, a 12-day series of meetings was held in New England, mostly in Negro churches, and $1,000 was raised. Invariably, the great attraction at these meetings was a contingent of the Mendians themselves, some of whom had learned enough English to sing a hymn or read a passage of scripture. In late November 1841, the remaining thirty-five Mendians sailed from New York on the bark gentlemen bound for Sierra Leone, not far from their home. They were accompanied by three missionaries and two teachers. Both of the latter being Negroes, Henry R. Wilson of Barbados and James Wilson. The work of the Amistad Committee had been brought to a successful close. Its supporters thereupon formed themselves into a new group, the Mendy Committee, pledged to send assistance to the departed Africans. The new committee found that its work was paralleled by the Union Missionary Society an organization founded at Hartford on August 18, 1841, by Negroes. Attending the meeting were 43 delegates from five states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, and Pennsylvania, plus five spectators from the Amistad crew. While denouncing the colonization scheme, the delegates felt that Negro Americans should share in the movement to carry the Christian gospel to Africa. Forming the Union Missionary Society, with headquarters to be located in New York, and with white membership to be welcome, they named J. W. Pennington as president, Amos G. Beeman as secretary, and Theodore S. Wright as treasurer. The next step was enlisting the support of the ubiquitous Louis Tappan. To the delight of the solicitors, Tappan showed a keen interest and, in typical fashion, soon became a dominant figure in the organization. Since he played a similar role in the Mendy Committee, a merger was inevitable. At Albany in 1846, the Mendy Committee, the Union Missionary Society, and two equally short-lived groups, the Western Evangelical Missionary Association and the Committee for West India Missions, transferred their funds to the newly formed American Missionary Association and disbanded. At this inaugural meeting of the AMA, Pennington and Wright were present. Wright and Samuel Ringgold Ward were named as two of the five vice presidents, and on the 12-man executive committee, four Negroes were placed, Wright, Pennington, Ray, and Cornish. Although a mission society... The AMA was abolition-oriented inasmuch as it considered slavery as one of the most heinous of sins. Its membership was open to anyone who is not a slaveholder or in the practice of other immoralities. It had no denominational or ecclesiastical ties, but its leadership was predominantly congregationalist and it was generally thought to be the secular arm of that church. It operated foreign and home missions the latter quite feebly supported until the mid-fifties. It had one Negro in the foreign field, Mrs. Mary Shad Carey in Canada, assigned to promote better schools. Of the 263 who were home missionaries before the Civil War, seven were Negroes. The Negro appointees of the AMA, like the whites, were largely settled pastors, whose congregations were too small or too poor to pay them adequately and who were, therefore, glad to get 200 or $300 a year as a city missionary. Quite exceptional was a man like Samuel E. Cornish, who, since he enjoyed a competence, could volunteer his services free of charge. But other appointees, among them Ward, Charles B. Ray, Jermaine W. Loguen, Henry Highland Garnet, and Amos G. Beeman, were in no position to decline payment for their services. Some of the home missionaries had money-raising responsibilities. Among these was the younger Beeman, who held public meetings, generally prefacing his financial requests with a lecture on such topics as the origin and history of the African race and what the colored people can, under God, do for themselves. The collections over one period of five months were meager, Beeman amassing a total of seventy dollars. The other Negro appointees of the AMA were city missionaries who busied themselves in Sunday school work, distributed tracts in the streets, reclaimed the outcasts, visited the sick and shut-ins, and attended funerals. The domestic program of the AMA was not to be measured by its works alone, particularly its heroic but aborted efforts in Kentucky and North Carolina. By its outspoken hostility to slavery, The AMA furnished an example of a church oriented group that did not evade or palliate a social and moral problem of the first magnitude. Other denominations, too, had their coteries of concerned churchmen. The American Baptist Free Mission Society, established in 1843, was anti slavery in outlook and activity. Among the Methodist clergy, there were dedicated abolitionists like Orange Scott who in 1840 called a convention which formed the American Wesleyan Anti-Slavery Society and who three years later led a Scottite secession from the Methodist Episcopal Church. In 1854, the Brooklyn Presbytery elected a Negro, A. N. Freeman, of Siloam Church as moderator. The Third Presbytery of New York voted this office to Theodore S. Wright in 1845 and to J.W.C. Pennington eight years later. In spite of this honor, Pennington, in his sermon to the presbytery, felt it necessary to express his keen regret as to the indifference of our general body on the slavery issue. An attempt at establishing an interdenominational society was made at Cincinnati in 1850, with the calling of a Christian anti-slavery convention. With Lewis Woodson and John B. Vichon among the participants of record, the some 2,000 delegates adopted 17 forthright resolutions to the general effect that slavery contravened the laws of God and the gospel of Christ. But there was no follow-up, and the effort came to little the anti-slavery views of individual clergymen and congregations did give an increasing moral tone to the crusade. Moreover, the hostility to slavery among churchmen was a factor in the breakup within three of the major denominations. The divisive question of human bondage was an issue, however soft pebbled in the split in the Presbyterians' ranks in 1837 between the old school and the new school differing viewpoints on slavery was the key factor in the disruption of and final split in the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1844, and it led in the following year to a similar break between Southern Baptists and Northern Baptists. But even in the North, the church on the whole, reflecting the great majority of individual congregations, preferred to deal gently with slavery in order to preserve harmony on an issue that often brought about disruption. The Negro church had no such squeamishness about bearing witness against slavery. The Negro church had its weaknesses. Its services tended to be emotional with an abundance of rousement, and many of its preachers were men of little formal training, and hence given to substituting sound for sense. However, Negro churches generally conveyed a sense of sincerity a quality which led such abolitionists as William Goodell and Joshua Levitt to attend them frequently. But from the viewpoint of social reform, the distinguishing mark of the Negro church was its independence from white control. Its money came from Negroes. Hence, it could speak out on such an issue as slavery without fear of losing members or offending someone in the South. Negro churches formally went on record as opposing slavery. The Zion Methodists, at their annual meeting in New York in 1852, declared it to be the duty of all Christian clergymen to denounce slavery at all places and under all circumstances. At its annual meeting in 1853 at New Bedford, The American Baptist Missionary Society, representing 26 congregations, strongly condemned slavery after the introductory sermon by former runaway Leonard A. Grimes. The 1859 meeting of the Evangelical Association of Colored Ministers of Congregational and Presbyterian Churches dwelt upon the iniquity of slavery. From 1816, the year of its founding, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, in its Book of Discipline, denied membership to slaveholders. Writing in 1856, Jabez Campbell, a spokesman for the denomination, claimed its priority over all others in being the most free from the evils of slavery. It is to be noted, however, that at the General Conference, which was held that year at Cincinnati, the delegates spent two days arguing whether to adopt a strongly worded resolution against slavery, one which called it the greatest of all crimes and the highest violation of God's law. Delegates who labored below the Mason-Dixon favored a more mildly phrased disapproval of slavery, one of them pointing out that those who spoke so loudly in Cincinnati would likely lapse into silence if they were located 200 miles to the south. Impressed by this viewpoint, the large majority voted to adopt softer tone on slavery. Officially, therefore, the African Methodist Episcopal Church might be termed emancipationist rather than abolitionist. But in actuality, most northern congregations and their pastors made no effort to conceal their decidedly anti-slavery sentiments church buildings owned by Negroes were commonly put to use for abolitionist meetings. When in 1837 the New York Committee of Vigilance had difficulty in getting a public hall for its meetings, the Ashbury Street Church came forward with an offer of its facilities. In early August 1847 the colored church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, turned its Sunday services over to William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. Bethel Church in Philadelphia, with Bishop Daniel Payne presiding, was host to Garrison at a reception in December 1852. Francis Ellen Watkins, having trouble in hiring a hall at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in 1857, wrote reassuringly to fellow abolitionist J. Miller McKim, I can get the colored church. In 1841, Parker Pillsbury could find no place in Salem, Massachusetts to hold an abolitionist meeting except at the colored Bethel Church. Unpopular for his outspokenness, Parker was coolly received in white Salem, but he praised his Bethel hosts, characterizing them as noble, manly, womanly, brave, and heroic to the last degree. Generally, the black churches asked no fees for permission to use their quarters. Hence, Frederick Douglass expressed a hurt surprise when the trustees of the Zion Methodist Church in New York asked him for $13 following an anti-slavery meeting he had conducted in their building. Douglass contrasted their behavior with that of Pastors J. N. Gloucester of Brooklyn and E. P. Rogers of Newark, at whose churches he had recently spoken free of charge. And, of course, there were a handful of colored churches, three of them happening to be in Philadelphia, where anti-slavery meetings were not held. Of these, the oldest and most socially prestigious was St. Thomas's Protestant Episcopal Church, with its fine organ and its carpeted aisles. Its pastor, the unruffled William Douglas, ignored the angry blast from his namesake, Frederick Douglass, characterizing it as a corrupt, old, pro-slavery hag. Many Negro churches held periodic prayer meetings for the slaves, commonly once a month. Sometimes a congregation would raise money to purchase a slave or the family of a former slave. Frederica Bremer visited a Methodist church in Washington in July 1850, where a slave member faced the bleak prospect of being sold down south and thus separated from his wife and child. A pewter platter, she wrote, was set upon a stool in the church, and one silver piece after another joyfully rang upon it. In their greetings of welcome to visitors at Sunday services, many preachers made it a point to include runaway slaves, their presence imparting a joyful earnestness to the proceedings. More than one Negro church was a station on the Underground Railroad its alcove a sanctuary for runaways. Fugitives were housed in the basement of Cincinnati's Zion Baptist Church, the number sometimes rising to 14. On one occasion, an infant who died was buried beneath the floor in order that the escaping party might not have to risk being seen by the hotly pursuing master. The Zion Methodist Church in Rochester was a station on the Underground Railroad. Quinn Chapel in Chicago, Bethel Methodist Mother Church of the Northwest, furnished a conspicuous example of providing accommodations for fugitives. And finally, it is to be noted that most of the prominent Negro clergymen, with only a few exceptions, preached a social gospel that stressed the church militant in a fellowship of concern. In deepening the abolitionist sentiment among Negroes, the role of their press can hardly be overestimated. Often the key to the success of a reform movement, the power of the press was certainly a vital factor in the anti-slavery crusade. The Negro press, even more than the Negro church, presented a united and consistent front against slavery and, as might be expected, a more single-minded attack than could be expected from the clerical quarter. The 17 Negro newspapers published before the Civil War struck one note in common, that of freedom and this included the temperance periodical, Northern Star and Freeman's Advocate. Its title, like that of the first two Negro weeklies, Freedom's Journal and its successor, The Rights of All, clearly indicate an abolitionist outlook. To attack slavery in all its forms and aspects was invariably proclaimed as the chief object of a newly appearing Negro weekly. In makeup, the Negro journals were much like those put out by white reformers. They consisted of four pages of six columns each, with seldom a photograph or drawing to relieve the eye or spur the attention. The first page was generally devoted to a long lead article, often a speech or sermon, sometimes from a pro-slavery source. The back page consisted of canned filler material, often remote from reformist activities. A serialized story, a travelogue, an at home with some literary celebrity, or an essay on nature. The two middle pages contained editorials, reports of meetings, notices of activities to come, letters to the editor, and stories relating to the cause. The last named were often copied, abolitionist sheets feeding heavily on one another. Negro newspapers carried advertisements of anti-slavery books, particularly slave narratives, including that of Gustavus Vassa, who after becoming free had devoted his career to abolitionist work in England. The attack on slavery by Negro journals took many literary forms, among them the catechistic and poetical. What is slavery? It is the wicked act of the stranger by which he takes the image of God and reduces it to a thing. A chattel," wrote the colored American. What is abolition? It is that light which cometh from above, from the Father of Light, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. The poetry appearing in the negro journals tended to be simple in theme if stilted in style, such as the opening stanza of The Things I Love. I love to welcome toil and pain, earth's cruel frowns and bitter bread that not a man may wear a chain when I am dead. For all their similarity with white reformist journals, the Negro papers often addressed themselves to matters peculiarly their own. Their correspondence often struck a note of racial pride and distinctiveness. I thank our father, wrote Junius C. Morel, that it has pleased him in his wisdom to order our color just as he has. J. McCune Smith expressed his gratification that the gifted Elizabeth Greenfield had not tried to pass as an Indian or Moor, but had stood proudly forth on the concert stage as a black woman, pure and simple. There is one thing our people must learn, he lectured. We must learn to love, respect, and glory in our Negro nature. In the columns of their newspapers, Negroes debated as to what name was best for their group. The editor of The Colored American expressed his displeasure at some of the designations then current. We are written about, preached to, and prayed for as Negroes, Africans, and blacks, all of which have been stereotyped as terms of reproach, and on that account, if no other, are unacceptable. Not surprisingly, this editor concluded that the name Colored American was the only one above reproach. But there were dissenting voices. At a meeting of Negro leaders later that year, the word colored was criticized as being vague and inappropriate. When James G. Burney was asked in 1838 about the financial status of the abolitionist societies, he replied, We are always in debt and always getting out of debt. Burney's opening words were tersely descriptive of the financial history of Negro newspapers. His closing phrase, less so negro weeklies like abolitionist periodicals generally operated at a loss without a single exception as a rule abolitionist sheets white or colored were short-lived negro newspapers did not pass away without putting up a battle the colored american employed agents among them w.s jennings of boston who in february 1837 distributed 500 copies of its prospectus, and obtained more than 20 subscriptions. Another early agent walked 26 miles through rain and snow to pick up five subscribers. Lewis Woodson proposed giving the new weekly a needed boost by heading a group of 100 donors who would give $5 apiece, and another group of 50 donors who would give $10 apiece. Later that year, Theodore S. Wright of New York sent 13 subscriptions. Subsequently, the paper employed as its agents Alexander Crummell, John Malvin of Cleveland, and the influential clergyman Charles B. Ray. In the summer of 1839, Ray announced a subscription meeting at Albany which would feature the last public appearance of the popular figure Nathaniel Paul, pastor of the Union Street Baptist Church. Other Negro-run newspapers received pledges of support, including David Ruggles' The Mirror of Liberty, whose appearance was hailed by groups in New York, Boston, and Hartford. But in receiving financial support, no Negro reformist journal matched those edited by Douglas, the North Star, and later Frederick Douglass Weekly. Aside from substantial aid from whites, Douglass tapped a variety of black sources, Negro women's groups, like the Colored Ladies of Philadelphia, held bazaars in support of his paper. At colored conventions, the delegates voted that it be supported, and at public meetings from New Haven to San Francisco, collections were taken up for it. Douglas Papers commanded the unpaid services of half a dozen local correspondents, among them such forceful writers as William J. Wilson of Brooklyn and J. McCune Smith. But, despite the most heroic efforts and the expending of more than $12,000 of his own money over an eight-year period, Douglas was forced to terminate his journal in July 1860. The immediate cause of the suspension was delinquent subscribers, a familiar complaint in Negro journalism. "'Pay us what you owe us,' ran the title of an editorial in a colored weekly. Will friend Gloucester please to transmit us some money, begged another publisher. We hope our Philadelphia patrons will be punctual in paying. The editor of the Impartial Citizen observed that many Negroes took the paper on credit for two or three years and then stopped it without paying up arrearages. Doubtless some of these delinquent subscribers were well-intentioned optimists who simply never were able to get enough money. John B. Russworm, the pioneer editor, attributed the poverty of his subscribers to their failure to pay. Delinquent subscribers compounded the other problems of the antebellum Negro newspapers. With possible three exceptions, Freedom's Journal, The Colored American, and The North Star, they started with little or no capital, thus leaving themselves vulnerable to sudden death while still aborning unscrupulous operators sometimes posed as agents, pocketing the money for subscriptions. In the fall of 1838, the colored American warned its readers in Ohio and Michigan about one Skipworth, who was soliciting funds in its name, but without any authorization other than his own. William Still sent a letter of sympathy to Mary Ann Shadd of the Provincial Freeman, to express his scorn for anyone who would lend himself to the base task of swindling the publisher of an anti-slavery paper. Agents, legitimate or otherwise, had problems in getting an audience. Often they had to work through local preachers and church trustee boards in order to get a meeting place and an audience. Hoping to improve things, Charles B. Ray wrote an article that appeared in the August 12, 1837 issue of The Colored American, and bore the direct, if lengthy title, needless difficulties to be encountered by an agent. And, of course, once an agent had access to an audience, the results were often disappointing. At one time or another, an agent for a Negro periodical was sure to express some bitterness at the want of interest in the abolitionist cause. William Still, Philadelphia-based agent of the Provincial Freeman, complained in 1858 that of the city's 30,000 Negroes, only 400 supported abolitionist newspapers. For the venturesome who published a Negro reformist newspaper, there was no escaping the problem of debit and credit. But the work had its satisfactions, its supporters rightly concluding that their role in the abolitionist movement was not to be despised. Aside from furnishing a vehicle for self-expression These newspapers furnished an outlet for the frustrations of the Negro, and his blueprints for a new relationship between white and black Americans. Negro newspapers, without exception, were not designed to circulate among Negroes alone. Their publishers hoped to attract white readers, thus furnishing an evidence of Negro abilities as well as an exposure to his viewpoints. And in truth, a white reader could hardly have picked up a copy of a paper like the North Star without some initial surprise at its format and content. It was, as the Oberlin evangelist pointed out, surpassed by only a very few in the large catalog of our anti-slavery exchange. And readers could not fail to note that Negro newspapers, whether well or poorly edited, had one thing in common alike they sounded insistently the two notes which gave to the land of their birth its distinctive cry, Freedom and Equality. Chapter 5. The Users of Adversity The elevation of the free man is inseparable from and lies at the very threshold of the great work of the slave's restoration to freedom a call for a national convention of colored americans 1855 four young negroes all of them students at Noyes academy in canaan new hampshire were listed as the featured speakers to appear at the public meeting of the new hampshire anti-slavery society on independence day 1835 in a city plymouth which itself bore a historic name taking place as scheduled at the congregational church The meeting began in the early afternoon with 19-year-old Henry Highland Garnet. He walked with a limp, and he was dark of skin, of full, unmitigated, unalleviated, and unpardonable blackness, wrote an eyewitness. His 20-minute speech was characterized by pathos and beauty. Next came Alexander Cromwell, three years younger than Garnet, but of like complexion, as sable as Toussaint. A boy in years only, Cromwell was listened to with deep attention, though doubtless his remarks were unembellished by the parade of references to English literary figures that characterized his later style. The third speaker was orphan Thomas S. Sidney, a graceful orator whose remarks were doubtless less barbed than those of his predecessors. The fourth scheduled participant, Thomas Paul of Boston, put in an appearance but did not speak due to a domestic affliction. The audience was disappointed, but hardly felt cheated after Garnet, Crummel, and Sidney. Indeed, the writer and editor, N.P. Rogers, relates that his elation almost moved him to propose a resolution that would surely have passed unanimously, that colored people have bona fide talent enough to be free. The belief that the cause of abolition would be advanced by evidence of the progress of the free Negro was widespread among reformers, white and black. In 1824, in a farewell address to Baltimore Negroes to be read in their churches, Elisha Tyson, a longtime patron and friend, warned them that any misconduct on their part would give credence to the belief that they were unworthy of freedom. George Thompson, the English abolitionist, told a Negro audience assembled at the Abyssinian Church in Portland in October 1834, that if they conducted themselves blamelessly, there would be an effect on slave emancipation. The Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women, meeting in New York in May 1837, spoke in similar accents. Nothing will contribute more to break the bondman's fetters than an example of high moral worth, intellectual culture, and religious attainments among the free people of color." The organizational meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, meeting in Harrisburg earlier in 1837, issued an address to Negroes informing them that as they gained wealth and respectability, their example would help to undermine slavery. Negro leaders needed no convincing that they and their followers should seize every opportunity to demonstrate the capacity for freedom and its responsibilities. Can slaves, if liberated, take care of themselves? What better way to answer this commonly raised question than to point to a free Negro of good habits and steady behavior? Any other kind of Negro was a liability to the abolitionist crusade. If we are lazy and idle, exhorted Richard Allen, the enemies of freedom plead it as a cause why we ought not to be free. J. McCune Smith warned against the seductions of the city, such as policy gambling, porter houses with their billiards and cards, women hastening through the streets with their bonnets untied, men hanging around the corner or gutter tumbling. Negro groups, like Negro individuals, took the viewpoint that the elevation of the free colored American and the liberation of the slave were very much interrelated. The Negro-controlled Ohio State Anti-Slavery Society, at its meeting in Cleveland in January 1853, viewed slave emancipation and free Negro elevation as simply opposite sides of the same coin. At a meeting of the National Council of Colored People in New York in May 1855, the 20 delegates agreed that the improvement of the free Negro in the North was an effective means of promoting emancipation in the South. Five months later, at Franklin Hall, Philadelphia, the Colored National Convention passed a resolution which summed up the point. In our elevation lies the freedom of our enslaved brethren. In that elevation is centered the germ of our own high destiny and the best well-being of the whole people. Here and there, as might be expected, dissenting voices might be heard the Negro's self-improvement would not gain him any privileges, asserted the National Reformer. If a Negro could write like Paul, preach like Peter, and pray like a Manadab, the voice of prejudice would still cry out that he was black. Hence, as the National Reformer viewed it, the elevation of the Negro depended less upon his abilities than upon the improvement of the white man's heart. Since the abolitionists spent the great bulk of their thin resources on the slave, the twin work of uplifting the free Negroes devolved upon themselves. Self-improvement efforts took many forms, among them the promotion of temperance, mutual aid programs, literary and cultural strivings, and better schools. The temperance cause ran head-on into a commonly accepted practice in early 19th century America, the daily use of liquor. But among Negroes, the temperance movement faced the additional difficulty of dealing with a class of people, most of whom were poor, and therefore likely to turn to drink as an anodyne, an escape. Sensing this popular appeal of the bottle, Negro leaders invariably linked abstinence with abolition, holding that to keep sober was to strike a blow at slavery. Among Negroes, as among whites, a supporter of abolition was likely to be a supporter of temperance. Again and again, Negro reformers declared that the free colored man owed it to his brother in chains to join the cold water army. Germaine W. Loguen did not see much difference in making a man a slave to rum and in making him a slave to a fellow man. William Whipper condemned liquor for its murderous effect on Africa, inducing its peoples to sell their brothers. Jacob C. White, in an address to the Banneker Institute of Philadelphia in 1854, denounced Rum as the ruin of the young, the very class of our peoples to whom we are to look as the warriors who are to fight for our liberty. Negro leaders were in full accord with the abolitionist editor, who asserted that drunkenness and pro-slavery always went together, whereas anti-slavery, without exception, was totally abstinent. Drinking and slavery, in the eyes of Negro reformers, were twin symbols of the moral decay of the times. The temperance impulse had deep roots among Negroes, going back to 1788, when the Free African Society of Philadelphia denied membership to anyone with the drinking habit. At every one of the National Negro Conventions from their beginning in 1830, the delegates arrayed themselves against the use of liquor. At the second annual convention, they passed a resolution authorizing the formation of a society on the principle of entire abstinence from the use of ardent spirits. This adjunct, the Colored American Conventional Temperance Society, had a mushroom growth, reporting 23 branches in 18 cities within a year's time. Again in 1834, the National Convention earnestly recommended the principles of total abstinence. The American Moral Reform Society, organized at the Fifth Annual National Convention at Philadelphia in 1835, announced that the promotion of temperance was one of their goals. No one who sold ardent spirits could be a member of the society, which urged the young men of the land to abstain from every fluid that had a tendency in the least degree to intoxicate. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. that's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, or we by law, 80 plus terms and conditions apply. website for details.